Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast if you're listening on Catch Up. Today, nuclear power and hot air question mark. The UK government's new energy security strategy has been unveiled. It is designed to make us less reliant on gas and oil imports from countries like Russia and more self-sufficient in fuel that doesn't contribute to climate change. The centrepiece of the plan is an acceleration of nuclear power, which is envisaged to contribute 25% of our energy needs by 2050, thanks to a new generation, no pun intended, of reactors that are smaller than we are traditionally used to and which can be constructed much more quickly. Ministers also envisage a substantial growth in wind power, as well as kicking off a new round of North Sea oil and gas projects. 95% of Britain's electricity could, note the conditional tense, could be low carbon by 2030. We'll hear shortly from Tessa Khan. Tessa is the director and founder of Uplift, a climate lawyer and an expert on UK oil and gas policy. And we'll also hear from Jonathan Atkinson, the director of People Powered Retrofit, a social enterprise that, as the name suggests, retrofits older properties. Love to hear from you as well, though. If you're struggling with an increase in energy bills right now, how will this help you? How serious is the government about decarbonising if it's willing to encourage new exploration in the North Sea? And will NIMBYs see off plans for new onshore wind farms? And nuclear power, certainly once the subject of serious protests in countries like Germany, perhaps less so here in the UK. But we still haven't found a way, have we, to store all that radioactive waste. Anyway, if you've got something to contribute or a question to ask, by all means join in. If you're listening live, you can only do that on your phone in the bottom left-hand corner. There will be a little microphone icon. Tap that to request access and we'll try and put you through to Tessa and Jonathan. And before we get cracking as well, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast come from the Byline Times, and we are funded by ordinary people like you. There are no oligarchs, no corporate interests telling us what to say, no traditional proprietor pulling our strings, so we can report without fear or favour. We can tell it like it is. So please consider taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. It's a brilliant monthly newspaper. You'll get details of how to subscribe at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. So let's bring in first Tessa Khan, who, as I say, is the director and founder of Uplift, a climate lawyer, expert on UK oil and gas policy. Hi, Tessa. Hi, Adrian. Great nice to be with to speak you. To you. And I'm guessing, Tess, I mean, it is called an energy security strategy. So it is, I suppose, by definition, long term. But it does mean that there are many thousands of people struggling to pay their energy bills now that costs have gone up substantially, are perhaps not going to find anything really to give them comfort out of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing about energy security is you can't claim to have it if you can't afford the energy that you otherwise have access to. So I think, you know, this is a hugely disappointing strategy. And I'm sure that Jonathan will have a lot more to say about the failure to in any way ramp up the energy energy efficiency measures that would make a real difference to people's energy bills across the country. Um, But obviously the fact that the government has chosen to make a big bet on nuclear power, which is the only energy technology that's actually increased in cost over the last decade um, and the fact that it's chosen to back increased domestic oil and gas production, despite that being clearly incompatible with 
um, a safe climate and also not doing anything to address the need for affordable energy in the short to medium term, I think goes to show you just how far this whole thing has fallen short of something that offers real energy security. It seems as though the government believes that nuclear is the silver bullet. In a sense, you don't need overseas producers producing gas and oil in order to generate nuclear energy. So there is this projected new generation of smaller reactors that are quicker to build. How credible is it that they will be able to create the amount of energy that the government hopes Well, they don't exist yet. Um, So, you know, it's really difficult to tell exactly what those small modular reactors will ultimately offer. I mean, but this energy strategy also commits to building eight new conventional nuclear power plants that um, in our experience in the UK over the last decade have, when they've been built, have run um, significantly over budget and significantly over time. So I think there's a real question about value for money and, as I said, the ability to address people's energy needs in the short to medium term. But actually, if the government wants a a booming local energy industry, then what it really should have done is invest significantly in onshore wind, which is a massive, abundant, clean and by far the cheapest renewable resource, uh, energy resource rather, that we have access to in the UK. But instead, it's um, pandered to the conservative backbench um, and refuse to really unleash the massive potential of that industry. Yeah, it's uh, uh, that is an intriguing one, isn't it? I'm, I'm reading now from the government document uh, setting forth their policy, and they say, in terms of onshore wind, we will be consulting on developing partnerships with a limited number of supportive communities who wish to host new onshore wind infrastructure in return for guaranteed lower energy bills. Now, a few weeks ago, it was being mooted that there would be this massive expansion of onshore wind energy and there were interviews with I remember hearing an interview with a a local council leader in Lincolnshire saying that if the government goes ahead with that they can expect massive opposition from conservative supporting rural areas and it seems as though they have listened to that and they've backed down so we now have this much more conservative no pun intended again this much more conservative attitude towards onshore wind and it, i mean of course it is a tough one because if you if you don't want a wind farm in your backyard so to speak it, it's reasonable in democracy that you should be able to have your say but on the other hand if this is in the national interest and in the planet's interest then there is an argument that some of those local concerns perhaps should be seen as less important than the overriding strategic need for carbon free fuel Yeah, I mean, look, Adrian, the other thing I would say in addition to that is that actually a lot of recent polling has shown that people do support onshore wind, even when it's supposed to be in their own communities. Um, You know, what they really object to consistently is fracking, which would lead to, you know, significant industrialisation of the countryside if done at scale. But onshore wind is actually much more popular across across constituencies, across demographics, then this faction within the Conservative Party seems to think it is. So I think they've really misread the public um, incredibly badly across a number of dimensions of this energy strategy. And you have a government which is committed to zero carbon 
by 2050. That is the government's stated aim, a government which is nevertheless commissioning uh, licensing for a new round of North Sea oil and gas projects. I mean, I'm, I'm just struggling to get my head around that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's flat out inconsistent. There's no way you can reconcile those two things, especially when the government's own figures show that on average it takes 28 years from an oil and gas license being issued to oil and gas reaching people's homes or reaching, you know, the UK's energy supply in a meaningful way. 28 years from now is literally 2050, at which point, as you say, we're supposed to be net zero carbon. Um, so, and that comes, you know, after, on top of the clear warnings that we've had from very credible energy experts, including the International Energy Agency last year in a report that was commissioned by the UK government and also the IPCC, the UN's premier um, body of uh, scientists and experts in climate policy who have made it clear that we can't have any new oil or gas projects if we're going to keep global average temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees, which is that critical threshold that governments have agreed to. So there is just no way to square that circle. There is talk as well of an ambition of creating up to 10 gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen production capacity by 2030. This seems to me to be perhaps desirable, but also like a fair bit of this document, quite theoretical at the moment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the most concerning part of that proposal is it indicates that that could half of that hydrogen could be so-called blue hydrogen, which is just gas with the carbon that's emitted from that um, captured and stored. Uh, first of all, I mean, that technology doesn't exist yet at any kind of meaningful commercial scale. No, right. So, is that, <laughs> sorry, Tessa, sorry to interrupt there, but it, effectively then that's a kind of form of carbon capture. Exactly. Yeah, I, for five. I, I mentioned that. Sorry to interrupt again, but we we discussed that on a on on byline radio and on the Bolland Times podcast just a few days ago, and it was made clear to us that that is just purely in the realms of theory. I mean, you can do carbon capture in the lab, but you cannot yet do it to any scale, and nothing like the scale that's envisaged here. Exactly. So that's one big challenge, I think, with that approach. And then the other one is, of course, that. The whole idea of this strategy is to help us get off gas, and this is really because of how expensive it is. I mean, the five-fold increase in wholesale gas prices is what's driving up people's energy bills, and yet this is about doubling down on gas. So I think the government's completely missed the point again with that part of their strategy. Mordecai, who is listening in, Tessa says, can we distinguish between good wind power or the good elements of it, the fact that it's clean against what some people might regard as the bad, its visual experience, its dangers to birds and marine life. Is there a, a fair distinction to be made there? Yeah, well, listen, I mean, I think as far as the those environmental impacts on wildlife go, that's why, you know, offshore wind and onshore wind, I mean, for onshore wind, the regulatory process is so rigorous that we haven't approved any onshore wind in it at, at any meaningful scale um, for the last six or seven years. And for offshore wind, you know, there's an environmental regulator that looks at the impacts um, that new proposed projects would have on local ecosystems. Um, but I think as always, you know, you've got to balance those against the alternative as well, which is 
obviously, you know, climate change that contributes to acidification of the ocean. We know it's driving biodiversity loss. Um, people don't like the way that gas-fired power plants look either. So, you know, there's always, I think, a balance that has to be struck. But um, I think that the regulations for offshore wind, for example, do really try to take those kinds of impacts into account. I want to bring Jonathan in in a moment, Tessa. I mean, you've been pretty damn beat about this strategy. Right. Underlying it is the desire to ensure that the UK isn't reliant on, for example, Russian oil and gas, as well as meeting those broader objectives of, around decarbonisation that we've looked at and around reducing prices that we've looked at. Do you think it will succeed at least in that primary aim of making us less reliant on other nations? Well, that's where I think, again, it unfortunately has failed because the fastest way to do that is to increase energy efficiency of our housing stock. If the government did that at scale, it would displace the amount of gas um, that we currently import from a country like Russia. So that is why I think this energy strategy is a pretty comprehensive failure because the government knew exactly what it needed to do, you know, both from a national security perspective, from um, the perspective of making sure we don't exacerbate the climate crisis and lowering people's energy bills, which is a real scandal uh, that'll push two and a half million households with children across the country into fuel poverty. And it's failed to tackle any of those. Tessa, thank you very much indeed. I think we're hearing a, a very loud raspberry in summary from you <laughs> in terms of this new energy security strategy. If you want to join in and you're listening live on Byline Radio, to join in, you'll need to be on your phone. In the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, you'll see a little microphone. So if you want to join in with a question or if you've got a contribution to make, by all means do so. Just tap on that microphone and it'll tell me that you're requesting access and we'll try and get you on and try and get through one or two of our callers listening around the world to Byline Radio. If you're listening on catch-up via the Byline Times podcast, I'm afraid that facility isn't available to you, but hopefully you're enjoying the conversation. And if you do want to know when Byline Radio is going live, because we tend to do it on a pretty ad hoc basis, but three, four, five times a week maybe, then follow at Byline Radio on Twitter. And just a reminder that we come from the Byline Times. They support Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. So do take out a subscription if you can to our brilliant news breaking, uh, to our brilliant newspaper, the Byline Times. You get details on our news breaking website on how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Jonathan Atkinson is with us as well. Jonathan is the of people powered retrofits. Hello, Jonathan. How are you doing? You're right. Good. Good. Thing. I just wanted to come in on the wind turbine stuff just very briefly um, because I think you made a really good point about the need to balance the concerns of local people with uh, national priorities around uh, net zero and tackling climate change. Now, there's an example of um, how political inference has worked the other way. There, um, there is a there is a wind farm in Greater Manchester that already exists, already in place. And there was an application there to extend it, I, I believe, just by one wind turbine, possibly more there. It had widespread local support. It had support from the local planning authority, from the council, and it was ultimately overruled by the Secretary of State. And and that overruling, there was, that, that's almost like the political, the national political interest working in reverse there. Local people were in favour of it. They saw it as a positive thing. They could see the contribution to the local community. 
But the political priorities, let's let's be frank, of the of the Conservative Party there, overruled those interests in the end. So I do think we do need to balance local interests and national priorities. But perhaps, perhaps, and, and I think it's been said by Tessa, you know, it's actually a very popular technology and a lot of people welcome it. And so it's it's important to reframe some of those kind of understandings. And Tessa says that the kind of work that you do, Jonathan, mm. is where energy security policy should be focused. So just give a sense of what what you do and uh, and explain how that would help bolster energy security. I mean, yeah, I mean, very, very simply, we take old leaky coal home homes. Uh, we, we retrofit them, retrospectively fit energy improvements to them, uh, most commonly insulation, double glazed windows, or triple glazed windows, new new doors, heating systems like um, like heat pumps and, and ventilation and also things like solar PV. So taking a real whole house deep retrofit approach to make radical reductions in people's energy bills. Um, Obviously, you know, it relates to how much money you're able to invest or the government is able to help you to invest. Um, but on a, on a £40,000 project that we, we ran for one home or a group of homes, rather, we we're able to reduce the gas uh, usage by 50% there and bills by £1,000. And that's a kind of equation that's only going to get going to get worse or better, so to speak, with the increasing energy prices. Um now, the IPCC released a landmark report on Monday around the state of, of global uh, fight against climate change. The technology that they advocate, one of the technologies they advocated the most, uh, as well as wind, was around energy efficiency because it's cost neutral or actually benefits. So you can invest money now and that, that will save energy over time and pay off that investment. So it's seen as a as a simple kind of approach, a simple set of technologies. We have an existing supply chain, a, con- a very good construction industry here. So it's a no-brainer, and it's something that can be done immediately, today, tomorrow, rather in 5, 10, 20 years' time as some of these kind of lofty ambitions in the strategy document today. Well, let's bring Tessa back in here, Tessa. Tessa, I'm looking at the uh, the government document here, their strategy document. Admittedly, the front page of it, not the whole document, but there's lots of talk of nuclear power, oil and gas, onshore wind, heat pump manufacturing, which may be part of the, the kind of the domestic solution here. But the kind of work that Jonathan's involved in retrofitting, I'm just going to do a word search. Just bear with me for a second, Tessa. I'm going to see if retrofit, no, naught out of naught, uh, words make that word search on the government's document. Is there anything in there that you've been able to find relevant to what Jonathan does? No, I mean, nothing that is basically commensurate with the potential of retrofitting and real energy efficiency measures to tackle people's unaffordable energy bills and also, you know, the climate crisis. So it is, I think, comprehensively a failure on that on that front and why why is that then you know why i mean as jonathan presents it you know you've got something that retrofits older homes people understand what that means and obviously there will be a cost to that but it makes homes more energy efficient so householders will in the longer term be paying smaller bills and so on and it's also it doesn't have the kind of cost of the environment associated with new oil and gas licenses for example or indeed with nuclear power why isn't it there 
Well, I'm sure uh, Jonathan has a much better sense of the politics um, of this particular policy area than I do. But it, it's clear that, you know, energy efficiency hasn't struck um, the government as a flashy announcement, as, for example, you know, great British nuclear, bringing nuclear home and all the other uh, rhetoric that Boris Johnson's been able to use around the idea of us building this big, shiny new fleet um, of nuclear power plants. And that's, I think, despite the fact that there is also a massive job creation potential in a big rollout of energy efficiency as well. So it's really, I mean, it's it's pretty baffling, to be honest. Yes, there are 10 references, by the way, on this introductory page uh, to great in terms of Great Britain. And the uh, the new nuclear policy has got the word great associated with it as well. There is a new government body, as very typical of the Johnson government. It is called Great British Nuclear. There we go. We can't have anything but the word great. Jonathan, tell me a little bit then about the politics of this, because yeah. I've spoken previously on the, on the podcast and on Byline Radio uh, numerous times about this, but a, a fantastic conversation a few months ago with Alan Simpson. He's a former Labour MP and environmental activist who lives in his own eco-home, so he practices mm-hmm. what he preaches and talks about exactly what you're doing, retrofitting, saying that in other parts of Europe this mm-hmm. is now becoming mainstream and commonplace and it seems to me jonathan sorry to steal your thunder here but i just think you could sell this to householders as we will make your energy bills cheaper who would object to that so why isn't this sexy politics it's uh, very interesting and if if people are interested i try to explore that kind of those ideas and that question indeed in a in a twitter thread earlier today and i think the the explanations are many and complex. Or, well, let's have a go at answering some of those. I think one thing we need to acknowledge in the UK is that energy policy is set by the Treasury <laughs> in the UK. Um, the Green Home Grant scheme that we had to fund bits of energy efficiency last year was a Treasury initiative, not a Bayes, who are the Department for Energy and Industrial Strategy. Um, and the Treasury have a very particular way in which they approach economic development in the UK. And it tends to be very friendly to large capital investments. Now, things like nuclear, things like fracking, things like hydrogen, they are very uh, suitable for large scale capital investments um, and the mobilization of capital resources to invest in. And they often go through what we call the hype cycle. So to begin with, they're hyped as the the, the great new thing and capital flows in accompanied by government kind of uh, uh, assistance and what have you and then you know typically it kind of fail that the hype fails over time but but we're certainly in a hype cycle now for things like hydrogen carbon capture storage and what have you um i think we also need to acknowledge the way that politics interacts um in this area and the fact that we have politicians making decisions in this area that don't have a knowledge or expertise of energy of climate change of energy policy and what have you. And they tend to be swayed by opinions that they hear um, in and around their you know, constituencies and in and around government. They tend to be lobbyists who are pressurizing certain things and they tend to be friends, let's be frank. Um, people they may have known from school, people they may know, you know in a business context. And those people typically, again, it's large capital investments. They're not looking at things like the, the small scale construction industry that specialize in retrofit that tend to be SMEs, sole traders. The vast majority of the construction industry I'd, I'd highlight in the UK is SMEs and sole traders. 
We're then also subject to the whims of policy and politics and how things change over time. We've all, all, already talked about how wind power has been subject to that. I'd like to highlight something. Now, I am old enough now to remember the last time that the UK had uh, announced an, uh, an energy policy for the UK, an energy strategy. And that was actually 2006. That's 16 years ago. It's, it's absolutely crazy that we've gone that long without some kind of formal policy on this. Now, that policy was only two years after the previous policy. And this is under the Blair government. So Blair came out, all renewables, and Alan Simpson was part of that policy making. Fantastic. We're going to revolutionize that. In the intervening two years, Blair was heavily influenced by the nuclear industry saying, come on, actually, we need nuclear and what have you. And that policy, 2006, went big for nuclear in a very similar way that this policy is going. Now, how many nuclear power stations have we built in that intervening 16 years? None. <laughs> we have no more nuclear power stations now than we did 16 years ago. In fact, a number of shut over the time. And I'm just looking today. I did a keyword search as well on the policy today. And I looked at nuclear, nuclear ambitions for nuclear. And basically what we get is Hinkley Point C is currently under construction. So that, that, that nuclear power station that was triggered under the Blair government 16 years ago, still under construction. Do we know when it'll be finished? No, not really. Perhaps 2026, but it's been subject to delays. And also, in addition to that, we have that they are, and this is from their actual policy document, in constructive negotiations with the developer on Sizewell C in Suffolk. So that is the sum of 16 years of, of policy there. And, and it just typifies this um, coming and going in, in you know, and the and politics and the winds of politics blowing this way and that. We, we don't have a science-based, climate change-based approach to energy strategy in the UK. Mm, those winds of politics blow. Maybe we can find a big machine to capture them and turn them into energy, if only. But, I mean, I'm frustrated as somebody who's a relative newcomer to this field, you know, chatting to people like Alan. But, you know, I, I know people... Frankly, if I'm honest, I'm not quite one of them myself. I'm not particularly well off, but I do know people who will be really badly hit by the kind of cost pressures that Tessa has referenced, you know, real cost of living pressures as a result of the increase in energy prices. And none of us, unless we're super rich, is immune from that. And it seems to me that you could very easily politically, and this is not a left or a right argument, you could construct a very coherent policy around home insulation about the kind of retrofitting that you do, which would be based on efficient use of public money because, you, you know, what you put in, you would get out. You would, you would make it uh, attractive to homeowners because their bills would be dramatically reduced. It would have a positive effect on our carbon output. So it would seek to meet, it would go towards meeting those international commitments that we have. And... It, 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 and it would create jobs, you know, it, it's well, demonstrably uh, a, a job creator. I mean, you know, how, Adrian, like what, what, what you stop, say, stop flow, no, 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 no. <laughs> what you say is entirely reasonable and entirely and, and not actually that complicated. And as Alan says, all we need to do is look across the channel or in this case, the Irish Sea to look at what other countries have done to approach this. Now, the Irish government. Um, this year, just this year, have announced a nationwide retrofit strategy that 
It's absolutely fantastic. The scale of it, there's grants to householders, but there's also focus on social housing and people on fuel poverty. There's a huge training program to train up people in the construction industry to be able to do the work. There's an emphasis both on the private sector, yes, and also on communities and um, community organizations as reputable intermediaries and trusted intermediaries for householders to talk to and to to coordinate area-based schemes as well. So we actually have these models and they're, and they're not very far away. Italy as well, uh, in the last couple of months, have announced a fantastic uh, program in this area. Alan's been to um, Germany. Germany for many years have had the KFW program, which matches affordable finance with high quality retrofit work. So it's, it's not exactly, it's not beyond us to be able to do that, to, 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 um, to emulate that kind of thing. And, and my hope, and I talked about the treasury and politics and all this sort of thing, but my hope is that good examples of effective retrofit policy, not that far away, We'll, we'll in time shame our politicians and our uh, uh, and our governments into acting in this way and, and just in a common sense way that benefits both householders, construction industry and everyone. Tessa, I know that you'd support what Jonathan's saying, but over and above retrofitting, and you've, as I say, blown a, a pretty loud raspberry towards the energy security strategy that we have. How would you refashion it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, the, the focus should definitely be on those energy efficiency measures because that's what will address the massive fuel poverty scandal we're facing. Um, I think the other thing that I would do is lower the barriers to onshore wind development, you know, set credible targets for that so that, you know, we are really taking advantage of that abundant, uh, incredibly cheap, especially compared to gas uh, local energy resource. And I would send a very clear and definitive signal that we are moving away from oil and gas expansion in the UK. Um, I think in the absence of that, we are continuing to give space to oil and gas companies who have unsurprisingly welcomed the energy supply strategy. Um, we're giving space for them to continue to influence our politics, to slow down the energy transition and to keep us dependent on um, a dangerous and expensive fuel. Tessa, I know you've got to duck out shortly, but it's been great to speak to you. Thank you. Uh, Thanks Tessa so much, Adrian. Tom, great <laughs> to speak to you. Director and founder of Uplift, climate lawyer and expert on UK oil and gas policy. I've still got a few more questions for you, though, Jonathan. You don't get away from it that quickly. But just to say, <laughs> if anybody's listening live on Byline Radio and uh, rather than on the podcast at Byline Times podcast, then uh, feel free to just request a microphone. You'll see the microphone in the bottom left-hand corner of your phone. Tap that if you want to request access you've got a comment to make or if you've got a question to ask and uh, we'll try and get you on before we finish and uh, Jonathan one thing I wanted to ask you was does the work that you do get commissioned by individual householders or do you get local councils sort of buying into your vision and if so how do they fund that yeah a bit of both um yeah our, our people powered retrofit is focused we're a not-for-profit cooperative so people can join as members and get involved. Most of our work's focused in the northwest. That's where we do most of our retrofit work. Um, and yeah, the majority of the work that we do, um, the front-facing work is with householders that commission our services um, and, and are able to afford that sort of thing, which is, you know, is a privilege and we understand that. 
Um, we do work with local authorities as well. And um, there is a huge amount of interest within local authorities, in part driven by the climate emergency uh, kind of, you know, wave of climate emergencies that, that went across the UK in the last couple of years, driven a lot by, you know, by councillors, by voters and, and citizens around those areas. So a lot of uh, local authorities have adopted uh, climate emergency strategies and in some cases some specific targets as well. What they are struggling to do is to find ways in which they can either directly or indirectly uh, create markets for retrofit in their area and markets that don't just benefit the better off, uh, that, uh, that benefit people across the spectrum as well. Because I think that's a really important thing here around concepts like energy justice, where we want to be helping helping the poorest, but also um, for those that have the resources to take the fair share of the, the weight of responsibility to, to, to reduce their carbon emissions. So they yeah, tend to you, find... You, yeah, go, go on. on, sorry. Go on, sorry, Jonathan. Yeah. They tend to find the money in different different areas and different ways. Um, we're doing actually an interesting project in Manchester with Manchester City Council, uh, which we're just kicking off at the moment, where the council previously have been able to offer... Um, 0% interest loans, um, which are charges on people's houses, um, which are basically free at the point of, of supply so they can access that money and pay that off over the long term. But unfortunately, all too often, these are small scale projects. Local authorities are constrained in the resources they have, the ability to borrow, the ability to build you know, new high quality energy efficient homes as well. So there's a lot of willing there uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of desire to do stuff, but but there are limited resources there. So primarily, then, your reliance on people who've already got properties, people who've got a bit of money, I suppose, in the bank uh, to do it. I mean, if you could retrofit entire council estates, I grew up on a council estate in Birmingham, and they were wooden construction, kind of mm. built in the 70s, really not very energy efficient at all, sort of a two-bedroom terraced uh, I'm trying to think, three-bedroom terrace council house. Um, and, you know, they should have been built to the highest modern spec, but they were built cheaply. So although they were relatively modern houses, they really were quite cold. Uh, you would get icicles on the uh, the inner pane of the window and so on uh, when, when we were mm. kids, all that sort of stuff, you know, that people sometimes get ab- absurdly nostalgic about. <laughs> and you just think if you could do, you know, if you could, somehow get into council estates in scale and and even if people had yeah. to make a contribution to that because you know there's no reason why people shouldn't make a contribution i i, I bet you you'd love to get your hands on that and think how not only would you be helping to to reduce our carbon footprint as a nation you'd also be helping some of the poorest members of society as well absolutely i lived in social housing and council housing and it was actually very well built but it was very well built for the age of coal. And we actually had a coal chute in the, in the flat. Um, but, and so it was actually very well built, but very poorly functioning in a non-coal kind of energy system. Um, so social housing, which is now predominantly um, run by uh, housing associations, housing providers, um, there, are, there are methods and there are funding streams to target towards those properties. And there is a <clears throat> there is an undertaking that the providers make to iteratively and over time improve the energy performance of those. But but you make a really good point, which is one around like 
council estates and areas that increasingly, thanks to previous government policies, have people that have right to buy, have bought their properties, you know, um, we, you know, and that's, that, you know, that's great for them. And they, they've been able to buy them. Sometimes like they've spent quite a number of years doing that. They might not have a lot of disposable income. So when the social housing provider comes along and they improve maybe some windows or a new roof, they're not able to help those people. And I think we do. We previously have had mechanisms, and that Manchester City Council one is a legacy of that, where those people have been able to, we've been able to help them, you know, maybe access 0% interest loans or a little bit of help where they can put a little bit of their own money in, but they help to do that and come in on those schemes. So it is an exciting project we're doing in South Manchester. As I say, it's like 20, 10 or 20 properties, and we need to be doing hundreds and thousands of properties. So, but I do think that, the, the, what we call it in the in the sector is area based. You know, it might be local, it might be council estate or what have you. Those kind of schemes have a lot of potential and a lot of potential to help a lot of people at a time, rather than like go through every single house, you know, and and, and do everything like bespoke, so to speak. Yeah, uh, one of the uh, government's <laughs> kind of fig leaves, I suppose, for a, uh, a climate change policy in this regard was the uh, the allocation of uh, grants for uh, heat pumps, but the, mm. only for a certain number of heat mm. pumps. I think this was in last year's budget. This was kind of a nod towards mm. fighting climate change. And again, in the new strategy, they've said they're going to run a heat pump in a heat pump investment accelerator competition in 2022, worth up to 30 million pounds to make British heat pumps. And it's kind of a bit weird that we've we've kind of gone down the the pro heat pump route, but we don't really have a a strong manufacturing base for that in the UK. We're now trying to retrofit that if you like yeah and i how, think go on, how go on. effective are heat pumps and you know is this not something that if they're if they are as good as the government seem to think they are is that is this not something that should just be fitted as standard in every new home in the country and if not why not why why not yeah um in terms of heat pumps um they, they had a little bit of a rocky reputation in in maybe 10 or 15 years ago in the UK, in that a lot of them were built um, by, in and for uh, continental countries or, or, or Scandinavian countries. They weren't necessarily that well adapted to the UK. But actually, over time, we've got a lot better at fitting them, at specifying them, putting them in correctly. And there's been some fantastic, sorry to go on about it, but from, from Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, again, being fantastic Really fascinating uh, large-scale trials and pilots. Um, you know, funnily enough, in places in Ireland, they might have been using peat, maybe burning peat on stoves. So it's a good use case to replace that by things like uh, heat pumps. And I saw a fantastic study where they looked at the the beast for the from the east that we experienced uh, uh, five six years ago now, and and saw that heat pumps performing really well and better than gas um, in those conditions. Um, the you rightly highlight the funding now the funding at the moment we fit about 30,000 heat pumps in the UK and the vast majority of them are uh, incentivized by payments the renewable heat incentive and the new scheme fantastic brilliant a new scheme same number you know wh where's the ambition when our targets say we need to be retrofitting or fitting hundreds of thousands a year and yet we're we're, we're looking at tens of thousands it's all very well, a bit of investment, that's fantastic, but we really need to be up in the ante and 
again, looking at places like France and Germany, they're really they're doing hundreds of thousands there and they are scaling up there. And it's a good news story for everyone. Yeah, there I think, in, some, I think in England and Wales, you can get a grant of uh, £5,000 towards mm. a, a heat pump. But the number of grants available is limited, isn't it? I think, as you say, to, to 30000 But yeah, why not say, why not have that unlimited? I mean, the, the, the sums of money that we're referencing here in terms of investment in the great British nuclear, for example, they've got a, a £120 million future nuclear enabling fund. What could that do yeah. in terms of heat pump installation and the kind of retrofitting that you do? Absolutely. This is what I talk about, the hype cycle, you know. Um, it, it's money that kind of disappears and, and you don't see the outcome of it, whereas heat pumps typically installed by SMEs, Soul traders working in and around our communities, uh, um, plumbers or electricians skilled up to deliver these high value quality jobs could be unionized as well. You know, fantastic opportunity there to invest in our local economies. And yet the, the, the kind of standard response from the Treasury is to go for something big. Go for something. Oh yeah, okay. These long-term things, finance there, and unfortunately, it's a reflection of the UK's approach to economic policy over the decades, which has been deindustrialization and and redeploying that capital in the finance uh, sector, financialization, and and ultimately, it's going to leave us penniless as a country and with with a low skills base and and a kind of low quality of life and a low quality housing as well. Jonathan, that's a gloomy but important. Oh, sorry, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's important. It, as you said, it's an important note on which to end because mm. what frustrates me about this is that so often these debates are driven by polarized right-left narratives. This is not about right or left. It is about saving the planet. It is about reducing energy costs, particularly for the poorest people in our country. And it is achievable and it is demonstrably achievable. And yet it is not being enacted, even in this new energy security uh, strategy. And it leaves me banging my head against a brick wall. At least you can go out there and do something positive yes. about it in your daily <laughs> job. But listen, it's been great to speak to you, Jonathan. Thank you, you so too. much. Thank you. Uh, that's Jonathan Atkinson, the director of People Powered Retrofit, which is a social enterprise based in northwest England. Thanks also uh, to Tessa Khan, who joined us. And thank you, all of us, all of you, for listening as well, whether you're listening live on Byline Radio or whether you're listening the many thousands who listen on Catch Up via the Byline Times podcast. I've mentioned before that we don't have any marketing budget. So anything that you can do to promote the good word on Twitter, on Facebook, anywhere that you share social media, please do so because it all really helps. And we're very grateful to those of you who do spread the good word via social media. And just a reminder before we go, if you can support our work at Byline Radio, and at the Byline Times podcast, the best way to do that is to take out a subscription to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. You'll get more information on taking out a subscription, or better still, a membership at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I hope you found it informative and entertaining, as I have, and uh, we'll see you again very soon.